Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Over Ready. This is Stephen Robles, and this week, due to July 4th weekend, we took a break from our forum on race and the church, but we'll be returning to those sessions next Sunday, so be on the lookout for our special guest and the forum to register to be a part of our Zoom call. But this week, we have special guest Alan Schleeman, and it's an incredible interview. Alan Schleeman has actually been a part of the Impact 360 summer programs, and Seth and Nerva have had the opportunity to work alongside him. It's an incredible interview. And speaking of Impact 360, don't forget, check out their online courses on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. Remember, you can use the promo code FREEMIND to get $25 off. And if you have a recently graduated senior from high school, or maybe you have a senior in high school this year, and they'll be graduating in 2021, take a look at Impact 360's Gap Year program. It's a nine-month program where students can go and stay at the Impact 360 Institute They gain a solid foundation for Christianity and a historic biblical worldview. It's an awesome program and it prepares them to then go out into culture and to university later and be ready to defend the faith. And if you use the promo code FREEMIND, you can waive your application fee for the Impact 360 Gap Year. So check out their online courses and their Gap Year program at impact360.org. Now here's our interview with Alan Schleeman. Our listeners probably know we've done the Impact 360 thing um, with you for the past few summers and always love, you know, the the content that you bring. You speak on Islam, you speak on, you know, marriage, but also the uh, the, the pretty light and easygoing topic of homosexuality. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I just love how you present it, you know, with so much truth and compassion and, um, and, and just a biblical basis. And, you know, we've, we've touched the subject quite a bit with our, with our audience over the past year since we've started the podcast, but it's typically been from the point of view of dealing with, you know, LGBTQ activism and the kind of the culture wars and that kind of thing. But we, we've had a couple listeners say, Hey, would you guys mind actually addressing the scriptural, um, kind of debate that's, that goes on with, with the biblical passages, as well as like maybe speaking to the scientific issues. And I don't know how far we'll get on all that today. Cause I know it's like a whole day's worth of teaching that you do on that subject. But, um, if nothing else, we could start on it and, and throw it to your book, make sure people check it out. But, um, I did want to start, you know, with the scriptural evidence, you know, and, and you, I'm sure you get this anecdote all the time, but we've, I've had a friend recently who was, who's been in the ministry a long time, um, you know, uh, married with kids, um, and had struggled with same sex attraction for a long time, decided, you know, um, very, very public ministry and not, I mean, not nationally or anything like that, but public in, in a, in a community sense. And, um, you know, kind of got with some friends and I think these friends have been, um, influenced by the Reformation project, unfortunately, and we'll explain what that is. But, you know, this person started buying into the ideas, ended up, um, the family kind of fell apart and they're, I think they are on the, in the process of moving toward embracing that lifestyle and trying to wed it with their Christianity. 
And I know um, early early on uh, in the Impact 360 thing, you and I think it was Sean McDowell had told told us about the Reformation Project. I had never heard about it. And you guys actually attended the conference. Can you can you just give a quick like sketch of what it is and what you guys experienced there and and how how is that movement is 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 it still going? Has it branched out to other movements? Where are we at with that at this point? Yeah. So the Reformation Project is an organization that was started by a guy named Matthew Vines. And um, he was a person who, you know, grew up in a fairly conservative Christian home, according to his story, and then um, also experienced same-sex attraction, and then began to delve into the question as what as to what the Bible says about homosexuality. And uh, according to his research, it came out that uh, there's a way to interpret the Bible to be, as he calls it, gay affirming. And so. He produced a video on YouTube that went viral. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres, I think, had him on his sh- on the show or, or interviewed him or something like that. I mean, he became a sensation and then started this organization called the Reformation Project. And their goal really is to go around the country um, meeting at uh, churches and training Christians to uh, see the Bible in a sort of gay-friendly way and, and take the b- passages that have traditionally been under, understood to be, uh, to, to say that homosexual behavior is sin, to take those passages and reinterpret them in a way that allows the Bible to be gay-affirming. And so um, they have conferences all over the country. Sean McDowell and I attended one in, in Washington, D.C. several years ago. And, and just by the way, we didn't go there as like secret, you know, agents like hiding or anything like we, we, you know, the first day we went up to, to Matt Fines and said, hey, you know, we're here. We're not here to disrupt anything. We just want to sit in and your conference and listen and attend and participate. And he and everybody there was fine with that. So there was no problem. But we sat in there and what we experienced is they spent a couple of days of intense training. So they had lectures, they had role play, they had all kinds of training to equip Christians to go back to their conservative churches and to uh, reform those churches to also be gay affirming. And I think I think their title of their organization, Reformation Project, is very telling because I believe that Matt Vines and other people who are advancing pro-gay theology have as their goal um, this intent on reforming the church. In other words, they see their efforts in line with the noble reform efforts of Martin Luther, and they believe that their reformation will be just as significant as that of Luther's. And so, yeah, so that's one organization. There's also uh, the Gay Christian Network, which I think was started by Justin Lee. Um, There's an organization called Soul Force, uh, which is started by a guy named Mel White. So there's a whole bunch of organizations like this that um, are kind of moving towards the same goal. Wow. Um, yeah, that's really interesting, especially for people that have may, may have never heard of anything like that going on. Do you think, uh, since, since you guys went there to D.C. Of, uh, several years ago, how much progress do you think they've made? It's probably hard to put a number on it, but do you feel like they've made uh, a significant impact and in, inroads in, in into the evangelical church at large? Yeah, I would say they have. And the reason I know that is because every time I'm invited to teach on this subject, where I've gone over the country, I always hear people bring up the Reformation Project or other pro-gay theology arguments. They, they raise them up as objections and say, well, hey, look, you know, we have friends or family or we ourselves are, are kind of persuaded by some of these arguments. So um, I know 
Rhodes because, you know, virtually everybody's heard of him. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, you know, maybe maybe it'd be worthwhile then to kind of dive into those arguments. And I don't know um, which would be the best scriptures to start on. I know, I know, you know, tends to be you talk about Romans one being one of those kind of mainstay passages, but I don't know if you even want to start further back and talk about the Old Testament passages that they typically give a different spin on. But whatever, w- would you maybe help us understand what are their arguments and why maybe why do they fall short in your view? Yeah, I mean, basically, their entire approach is to say, look, the Bible does condemn homosexuality. Yes, it does condemn homosexual behavior. So they'll concede that right up front, but they'll say this. They'll say, but what it condemns is abusive, coercive, or exploitive forms of homosexuality, like homosexual gang rape or um, master-slave sodomy, where there's like a power difference and a power differential and, and a master takes advantage of a slave. Or maybe it's talking about pederasty, where, where men have sex with boys. And so the Bible does condemn homosexuality, but only those type of abusive, coercive, or exploitive forms, not the loving, consensual forms of homosexuality that are exhibited by gay and lesbian people today. And so notice what they're doing. They're saying it's that type of homosexuality that the Bible condemns, not loving consensual relationships that are exhibited by gay and lesbian people today. So therefore, they conclude what the Bible prohibits or the the, the biblical prohibitions don't apply to gay Christians today. That mm. that's their main sort of thesis, okay? And so what they do is they they go through all of the traditional passages that have been looked at, and they uh, affectionately call them clobber passages. <laughs> but they go through all they go through all these passages, and they try to figure out ways of saying, "Oh no, this passage doesn't t- condemn homosexuality," you know, broadly. What it's really talking about is pederasty, or this passage doesn't condemn homosexuality generally. It, what it's talking about is you know, master slave sodomy and so on and so forth. Now, I'd recommend, Seth, because you did ask an important question, that is, you know, should we just look at the biblical passages that are traditionally brought up, or are there other things they, that they, they bring up? And I would say, actually, one of the main passages that they bring up doesn't even mention homosexuality. It's actually a passage that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, where he talks about how... Um, um, he says, he says uh, how you'll be able to tell the difference between uh, uh, false teachers and, and true teachers. Actually, I think it's, um, I'm trying to remember what it is. Uh, oh, yeah, he says, he's, Jesus, this is Matthew 7, just looking it up really quick, 7, 16 through 17. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. And what, what, what they often are trying to do with this passage is say that you can tell the difference between good Christian teaching and bad Christian teaching by looking at its fruit. And then they conclude, they say, see, since the traditional evangelical sexual ethics says that homosexual behavior is sin, we can see that this teaching has led to all kinds of consternation and depression and rejection and guilt and shame and so on and so forth in the lives of the LGBT community. So therefore, this is evidence that this teaching that homosexual sex is sin 
is is meets the criteria that Jesus is bringing up, and that is that yeah, this is false. This is bad teaching because it yields bad fruit. Mm. So I don't know if you're familiar with that passage, but this is a passage that you know the Reformation Project has brought up. I think Jen Hatmaker, um, who's yeah. also a well-known um, uh, Christian, who's also she's brought up this passage as well. And I don't know if it's because she heard it from the Reformation Project or not, but either way, I think I've heard her bring it up, and a whole bunch of other prominent Christians. They raise up this passage as sort of their um, overarching principle to show that the traditional biblical sexual ethic that homosexual behavior is sin or that marriage is only between a man and a woman that this teaching is wrong because it leads to the bad fruit of um you know shame rejection depression so on so on, or and or suicide yeah actually we've uh kind of talked about that with Jen Hatmaker a little bit that, that seems to be her kind of on the road message these days is, you know, bad fruit theology. She kind of applies it to various elements like the patriarchy, the uh, pro-gay theology, all those kind of whatever, you know, oddly enough is, is kind of floating in the culture that, that people hate. It's, it tends to fall in the same categories that she talks about as bad fruit. Well, what, you know, dealing with that passage, what, what, what would be your response to that idea before even jumping into the, the quote unquote clobber passages? Right, right, right. Well, there's, there's two points I make with regards to that (laughs) passage from Matthew, um, uh, Matthew seven. First of all, it's this, if you were to accept their sort of interpretation of this passage, then that would mean that any difficulty any unpleasantness any anguish any consternation that a christian experiences would then qualify as bad fruit in other words any immoral behavior that the bible says is immoral could be then justified if that if avoiding that immoral behavior leads to hardship right mm. and and that's crazy because every time you submit to god's will over your own will you're probably going to experience some degree of consternation, right? right. I mean, even Jesus, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the perfect example of this, Jesus, before he went to the cross, was incredibly uh, experiencing anguish and turmoil over following the Father's will over his own with regards to going to the cross. I mean, he literally bled in tears, right? And then he mm. experienced torture and then execution. Well, according to the Reformation Project's definition of this pass or interpretation of this passage, well, that would be bad fruit, <laughs> right? And th- that would then qualify as bad teaching for Jesus to have followed the will of the Father in that case. And so, this is why I say, if you were to accept their interpretation of that passage, it would it would basically lead to saying, okay, any any biblical teaching. Any following of the Father's will that leads to difficulty can then be just written off and dismissed as being unbiblical or, or bad teaching, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, it, it makes me think of that um, that recent TED Talk where the there was a young lady who was kind of on the basis of how it made people who struggled with pedophilia, how it made them feel 
she, you know, kind of tried to present that in a positive light, like, man, we shouldn't make them feel bad. It's not, you know, it's not his fault. He likes 11 year old girls. And, you know, and that, like that example that would become part of that uh, bad fruit. And then you couldn't, you know, say, you know, it's bad. Pedophilia is bad. If it makes the person who struggles with that feel shame by telling them that. And so I think, yeah, that, I mean, that to me seems pretty strong, but go ahead and uh, finish your point. Yeah. So, so that would be just accepting their interpretation and kind of showing the absurdity that it leads to. Okay. So then, so then the, so then the question becomes, well then, um, what is, what is the proper interpretation, you know? And I think the way to consider this is to just simply look at the context of what Jesus is talking about. Okay. And when you read Jesus's teaching in context, it turns out that it doesn't (laughs) vindicate the, um, pro-gay theology interpretation but rather, it condemns this interpretation, and it condemns the people who are advocating for it, okay? So, so take a look here. So Jesus, in this passage, he's warning of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but who are actually ravenous wolves, right? And then right. Jesus asks the question, well, how do you tell the difference? And he says, by their fruit, okay? Um, and what we, what we see Jesus teaching here is that good teachers yield good fruit, false teachers yield bad fruit, but then we can read in Matthew 7, 21, what are examples of good fruit and bad fruit? Okay. Mm-hmm. So it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Mm-hmm. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is that those, the, the, the people who are exhibiting good fruit are those who are obeying the will of the father, who are obeying God. And verse 26 Everyone who hears the words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. So the bad food is people who are disobeying Jesus. Okay. Mm. So therefore, good and bad fruit is not um, referring about the consequence of the teaching, but rather the conduct promoted by the teacher. When you ask the question, okay, well, in this discussion about the Bible and homosexuality, who is amongst the Christians who are in sheep's clothing encouraging them to practice lawlessness as it pertains to homosexual behavior? Mm. Well, it's, it's the people who are advocating pro-gate theology. And that's the very bad fruit that Jesus is referring to. And You're so this right. is why I say right. the passage doesn't vindicate the advocates of pro-gate theology. It, it rather condemns them because they're the ones who are advocating to engage in behavior that disobeys the will of the Father. You know. Mm. I think you're right. That's what I'm seeing from a lot of the folks that advocate for pro-gay theology. It's it's that fruit passage, and like you showed, it not only is it not the case what they're saying, but it actually works exactly against them. But going to the the previous point, where they're saying, well, the Bible doesn't condemn you know homosexual behavior, simpliciter. It condemns a certain type. Um, how 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 do how should we understand that as Christians? What do, what would be our response to that? Well, I would say that um, if you look at the the primary passages that uh, deal with this question, so the two passages in Leviticus, for example, um, uh, the the three passages in the New Testament, so you got Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. When you look at those five passages, and, and there's others, but let's just consider those five passages, all of those passages when you read them, and, and again, just on a cursory reading, and then even in an in-depth reading, they entail a wholesale 
categorical prohibition against all forms of homosexual sex, not just abusive ones. So, for example, okay, just take Leviticus 18.22. It simply says, you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. This is an abomination. Notice, there's no indication in that passage that any particular type of homosexual sex is in view. Okay? All you have is a clear case, categorical prohibition against any type of homosexual sex. So, yeah, so Leviticus 18.21 is a verse prohibiting sacrificing your children to Molech. The verse after, verse 23, is a prohibition against uh, bestiality. So notice nothing even in the context suggests that there is any uh, indication that this is about some specific type of homosexual sex. And notice there's no exception made for loving consensual relationships. Okay. So notice in Leviticus 18.22, all you have is a categorical prohibition against any type of homosexual sex. So that verse alone would disqualify the pro-gay theology interpretation, which says, oh, no, 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 no. this is about, you know, master-slave sodomy, or it's about, you know, something else. You know, this is just fabrication on their part. So I would say, if, in other words, the way to undermine the pro-gay theology position that says that these passages are about abusive, coercive, or exploitive forms of homosexuality is to show that any passage that says that any type of homosexual behavior is sin would, would basically undermine that particular view. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I think you could do the same thing with um, uh, Romans 1. Uh, Romans 1 is the same in the sense that uh, when you read it, there's no indication that any particular type of homosexual sex is in view. All you have is a wholesale categorical prohibition against any form of homosexual sex. You know. So, do that when when you get in those dialogues with people who are you know advocates, especially the the more apologist types of pro gay theology. What what would be sort of their first layer response? To those passages typically when you get into the text itself well i mean it just depends on the passage but let's just say romans 1 since i just mentioned that what they will say is no 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 what's going on here they'll say is that people weren't satisfied so these so in other words like straight people weren't satisfied with just heterosexual sex they were inflamed with an insatiable lust that led them to engage in same-sex behavior you know no the bible there or paul's not condemning you know, being gay, but rather unrestrained excessive lust. Again, they're just trying to take it, they're just trying to offer a different interpretation. But again, if you read the passage, the passage doesn't say that. It doesn't, and now, by the way, I agree, it doesn't condemn someone for being gay. That's true. What the, what the Bible passage is referring <coughs> to is a behavior, right? And what behavior is it referring to? Well, again, you can read it. And I'm reading, by the way, from the NASB, which is a more kind of word-for-word translation rather than a like an NIV, which is a dynamic, dynamic equivalent. Saying you shouldn't be studying that message version? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with, different, with, with free translations or whatever, or even dynamic equivalents. I actually use all different one, kinds. But when you're looking for, when you're doing kind of more intensive Bible study, I think sometimes it's more... Um, accurate to look at a 
sort of a more literal or word-for-word translation, like in NASB. I mean, even the ESV is um, more dynamic equivalent-ish than an NASB. Not that I have a problem with it. Um, and so I tend to just look for for translations that just take the you know the Greek or the Hebrew and just try to find the equivalent English word rather than trying to do the interpretive work for me, you know. But anyway, so but going back to Romans 1, it says, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, the word that's translated their function is from the Greek word krisis, which means use, relations, or function, especially that of sexual intercourse. By the way, this is according to BDAG, which is the kind of the standard Greek lexicon. Okay, So in other words, Paul's saying men abandon the natural sexual function of a woman. In other words, Paul here is making a design argument. He's talking about plumbing, saying that men are designed to function sexually with a woman and women are designed to function sexually with a man. And when people abandon that natural function that the opposite sex is made for, then they're engaging in this kind of um, degrading behavior. Okay, So in other words, the passage there is not talking about you know insatiable lust and abandoning um you know where it's like okay i'm not satisfied with heterosexual sex so now i want something more i'm going to have homosexual sex no no no. it's saying that people abandon the natural way that god designed sexual sexuality to function and engage in an abusive form of it Mm. so in other words their interpretation is just is is invention really i mean I, i hate to say it that way but they're just making up things and saying something that the scripture doesn't say. I'd also add that Romans 1 is, this passage, Romans 1, which is verses 26 through 27, the whole Romans 1 is a, um, is a creation narrative. So the context even in Romans 1 is that God has made the world, he's made humanity, he's designed humans and, and the world to function in a certain way. And then Paul begins to argue that some people, however, are, are rejecting the obvious evidence of God's hand in creation. And Paul says they're so rebellious towards believing in God that they reject the obvious evidence of God's hand in creation. And so um, they begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. So again, even the context here is God's made the world, he's created humanity, he's designed them to function in a certain way. And then when he gets to, you know, verses 26 to 27, he's just giving another example of how some people are rebelling against God's design, against God's creation, and engaging in a way that violates the way he made humanity. Side note, and I don't want to derail the track you're on, but, you know, I've heard some atheists and pro-gay theologists say, you know, they kind of dismiss Paul just as a misogynist. And they say, well, his words on sexuality aren't applicable for today. And so we we dismiss Paul's words on sexuality altogether. And then the one passage that Jesus talks about, a male and female, he created them, 
uh, well, he was talking about divorce, and that wasn't even applicable to same-sex attraction and homosexuality. How do you tackle that argument? Well, okay, so first of all, if they're an atheist, um, I, I'm not really trying to get them to consider right. the biblical view on sexuality. So if I'm talking to an atheist, and they're like, well, Paul's views are just misogynistic, or whatever, I'll say, well... I mean, well, first of all, I'd, I'd wonder why I was even in that in that particular sure, conversation yeah. in the first place. Like, why am I talking to an atheist about right. biblical sexual ethics? Like, if I'm talking to an atheist, my first concern with them is not, hey, you need to adopt my views on sexuality and on abortion and all of these sort of tertiary or secondary issues. <laughs> I'm going to say, man, you need to know sure. about the gospel. And I'm going to try to convince them or not convince them, but proclaim the right. gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And then if they you know, at some point become, uh, you know, trust Christ and the Holy Spirit and begins to indwell them. Well, then I'll go to the biblical passages about maybe sexuality sure. or, you know, whatever ethical issues and try to convince them. So I'm not super motivated in trying to convince an atheist of any right, right. sexual view, you know, sexual ethic view, right? Now, Progressive if Christian. they're yeah, a pro-gay theist, Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, right, right, yes. Yeah, so now, so for this person, then I'm just going to step back a little bit and ask the question about whether they consider all of Scripture to be the authority of God or just part of it. Because if they're going to dismiss um, Paul's writings or Paul, well, I mean, this guy wrote 13 of, of the 27 um, books of the New Testament. And according to Christian theology, all of um, the Bible is the inspired word of God, not just the red letters, you know, I mean, even the, even the black letters of the Bible, right, are still the word of God. So um, we're, we now kind of have to back up a little bit and, and, and ask the question about biblical authority and what they consider to be authoritative. And if they're going to be dismissing um, Paul, well, this is, a, this is a problem in terms of what, again, again what I see as their uh, understanding of biblical authority. You know, so I'd, I'd probably go to that particular question first before I, um, yeah, <clears throat> before I go further. That's however, good. however, yeah, I'd say that Jesus alone, I mean, you know, I know they're going to try to dismiss that passage that you mentioned. Um, but I think Matthew 19, um, actually affirms our view and isn't just, um, like, oh, that's just Jesus talking about divorce. Yes, Jesus is talking about divorce, but it's very significant what Jesus says, right? So he is asked the question about divorce. This is Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. But then notice what Jesus does. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, Jesus there begins to quote Genesis 1, 27 through 28 and Genesis 2, 24 which are the two foundational passages that um, describe the sexual binary of how God created humanity and the gender complementarity uh, that is inherent in marriage. So Jesus continues. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so, depending on the translation you read that, those a lot of those words are bolded. I'm sorry, they're in all caps because Jesus is quoting those two critical passages in Genesis, the Genesis account of creation, where God literally creates humanity, 
makes them male and female and says that this complementarity is how you come together to create a one flesh union. And then after Jesus quotes those two foundational texts, then Jesus adds his own commentary on the passage. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so I think what's significant about this is that when Jesus says this is a God-ordained, what God has joined together, he's saying that this is a God-ordained institution, this male-female complementarity. And um, the only pair of people in the Bible that, is, uh, that are ever described as being able to create a one-flesh union is a man and a woman. There's no other couple, no other pair, no other group of people that's ever described anywhere in Scripture as being able to create a one-flesh union except for a man and a woman. And so if you wanted to summarize Jesus' view, I would say Jesus' view about sex and marriage is about one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That's Jesus' view. And that view alone disqualifies homosexual behavior. Of course, it, it also disqualifies you know, fornication and a whole bunch of other things that have nothing to do with homosexuality, but are also sexual sins. So, he, you know, this isn't just us singling out homosexuality. I'm just bringing it up because that's our topic today. But by Jesus stating this view, he's disqualifying every type of sexual activity outside of a married man and woman. I want to come back to something you alluded to earlier, a distinction sometimes made between homosexual orientation and homosexual behavior and even same-sex attraction, all that. Um, Before we jump into that, um, you know, one of the responses to Old Testament passages as well, you know, they all, God also condemned shrimp and lobster in the Old Testament, that kind of deal. And I know you deal with that in your books and online, so we could just throw people to that if you want to give them the resources, or if you want to say something briefly about that before we jump into that other topic. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's up to you. I don't know. It's up to you and how much time I want to take with that. I'm, I'm fine to address it here or if- maybe the short, the, yeah, give us, give us the, like the two minute version and then point us to some further resources we they could jump into. Okay. Well, um, okay. So there is some truth to what these people are saying. Yeah. We don't, uh, you know, there are prohibitions in Leviticus, for example, that prohibit, um, people from wearing clothes that are made out of two different kinds of linen, or as you mentioned from eating shrimp or from eating, you know, uh, pork products, which, that would be horrible because we all love bacon and especially bacon wrapped <laughs> filet mignon. And I mean, right. Cause bacon wrapped filet mignon is just amazing. Cause you have the tenderness of the filet combined <laughs> with the flavor of the bacon, which adds the fat. And so you have, it's almost like having a ribeye, but with the tenderness of a filet, which is just amazing. And so there, there is some truth to what they're saying. We don't follow all those Levitical prohibitions. And, and the reason is, is because there's something to be said about how when Jesus came and established the new covenant, he, and again, I'm not trying to advocate any particular view of, of theology, because I know there's some differences about um, theology here, that even amongst Christians. But generally speaking, yes, there is something to be said about the New Covenant and how the New Covenant um, fulfills the requirements of the Old Covenant. And so, I, I don't want to get into all that, but I, I, all, I, all I would say is, yes, there is some truth to what they're saying. We don't follow all the Levitical prohibitions. And so, this is why I tend to suggest to the Christian 
that if they are going to um, talk about the Bible and homosexuality, I say start with the Romans 1 text or some of the other Romans, uh, some, of, some of the other New Testament texts, because Romans 1 is written during the New Covenant of Christ, which is the covenant that governs Christian behavior primarily today. And so by citing a Romans 1 text, you don't have to get into the debate or the question about, well, Leviticus doesn't apply to Christians today, or does it, or how does it? Um, that is an interesting question, but you just avoid that objection, and, and Romans 1 doesn't uh, yeah. fall prey to that. By the way, Romans 1 also mentions both male and female homosexuality, which right. none of the other passages do, which gives it another sort of benefit. Mm. Um, but but I will add one thing about Leviticus, because a lot of people say, well, what does that mean? Like, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter or it's irrelevant. No, absolutely not. I, you know, I don't think we should somehow distance ourselves from the Old Testament or the Mosaic Law. Um, the, the interesting question, though, with Leviticus is, do those prohibitions, especially the ones about sexuality, do they reflect temporal rules that were only for Jews in the theocracy, or do they reflect some sort of universal moral concern for everyone? And um, I think it's interesting that those verses, especially Leviticus 18.22, which is a prohibition against homosexuality, if you read the context there, what you see are is that those behaviors of homosexual behavior and those other things, uh, bestiality and sacrificing children to Molech, these were the very behaviors that brought judgment on the Canaanites, which were a group of people who were not under the Mosaic law. In other words, not being under the law did not free them from the prohibitions, rather the the biblical text says that these people, the Canaanites, were condemned and they were spewed out for their wickedness. So there must be some sort of universalness, if that's the right, if that's a word, <laughs> to those ethical standards, you know, that applied even to Canaanites who weren't even Jews or under the theocracy, you know. So, anyways, uh, no, that's, that's just a that's just a point to the fact that there's got to be some sort of universality to some of these ethical standards. I was going to say, but even if you didn't want to go there, you could always just stick with Romans one or the other other New Testament passages. For sure, as you were saying that, it was it was making me think. You know, it ties in very nicely too with Romans one. If it, you know, like you said, it being that creational type passage, that it would be the universality of that um, moral imperative. I guess um, that you would see that would make a lot of sense out of it being applicable to the Canaanites as well. And then Paul's talking about all of humanity, not just Israel, under the Mosaic covenant. But um, so yeah, jumping back up to to the New Testament, talking about I've I've seen some people make a distinction between well, Paul didn't have a concept of homosexual orientation, so he wouldn't even have known how to address that, and he's just you know I guess maybe talk a little bit about that, and also the distinction we might make as Christians between the behavior that's condemned and then same sex attraction is that a sin? as well? How do, how do we begin to navigate with dealing with people that are struggling in the church? So the, the first thing you mentioned is that Paul didn't have an idea of orientation, right? Is that what you said? Uh, you know, I'm saying I've, some people, I've heard them say that before, like there was no concept in the New Testament of orientation in, that, in the sense that we think about it in modern times. Okay, yeah. So, right. There's no indication, biblically speaking, that they had a sense that there was people who were born gay, 
uh, or or yeah, orientation as is modernly uh, as it's as it's understood in modern times, which I would agree. Yeah, the Bible doesn't seem to suggest that. Um, although I think there are new, I'm not New Testament, first century writers who did cite um, uh, reasons why they believe that some people could have had some sort of biological component to their same-sex attraction, which mm. are not biblical, but they're first century writings. Uh, mm. I don't have the top. I don't have those off the top of my head, but I know um, both uh, Preston Sprinkle and Robert Gagnon have made reference to those passages, and I I probably have them, and I can um, send them to you later if you wanted. But um, but those aren't those aren't specifically in scripture. Um, but but going to the claim that well, Paul didn't understand homosexuality as we understand it today. Okay, yeah, maybe. But here's the point. The Bible doesn't care about orientation per se. What it cares about is behavior. And what you notice is that in Leviticus and in Romans and in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy 1, what the Bible prohibits is a certain kind of behavior, right? And the behavior mm-hmm. that's prohibited is men who abandon the natural sexual function of, men, of women and have sex with other men. Or as it says in Leviticus, one should not lie with a man as one lies with a woman, right? So what the Bible is prohibiting is behavior regardless of why someone might engage in it. In other words, it doesn't matter if you want to experiment with homosexuality. It doesn't matter. The Bible prohibits homosexual behavior. It doesn't matter if you believe you're born that way or have a natural sexual orientation towards the same sex. It doesn't matter. The Bible says you can't engage in this behavior that is a sin. It doesn't matter if you're a man and you're in prison and the only possible sexual outlets are other men. doesn't matter. The Bible says you cannot engage in this behavior. So even if it's the case that Paul didn't know about this concept of orientation or our modern conception of homosexuality, it doesn't matter because the Bible doesn't uh, care whether you have a natural sexual orientation or you're just doing it for fun or you're just doing it to experiment or whatever. The Bible says, hey, you cannot engage in sex with someone of the same sex, period, regardless of why you might be motivated to do so. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So that's that's how I'd I'd respond to that particular objection. I heard a podcast uh, where N.T. Wright, he had mentioned like the writings of Plutarch, those around – I guess around the time of Paul or slightly before where, you know, consensual homosexual relationships were written about and widely understood. Do you have any reference for that or context on that? I do. I, I actually, I have studied this, but I don't have it off the top of my head. I'd have to, I'd have to pull it up in one of my articles. So if you um, remind me afterwards, I can, I can pull it up. I just don't have it memorized. And those will be on str.org, right? Those articles? I don't No, I don't know. Those articles I haven't written about and published. Oh, okay. I just, I've just studied them because of just my own interest in studying that question. Gotcha. 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 But, but I know that we could point to other, I, I mean, I could point to uh, Robert Gagnon or N.T. Wright or um, Preston Sprinkle who have written about them and they do have published articles on them. And so, yeah, to jump into the, the next question I had, do you think it's helpful to make, I mean, I guess it is necessary to make a distinction between the behavior and the attraction. Is there any, how do we, how do we understand that as biblical Christians to not is same sex attraction in and of itself a sin or is it a 
product of the fall and then when does when does the attraction lean into sin like is it a cultivation when you begin to like can you maybe help us understand that distinction and is because if paul's not necessarily talking about the attraction itself but the behavior does that mean the attraction itself is not necessarily a sin yeah so you have to yeah this is a very nuanced discussion i know um there's been a number of of theological um uh events and articles that have discussed this. Um, so so a, a number of things that you said are true. Yes, I'd say all sin is ultimately the result of the fall. So yes, homosexual uh, desires would, would certainly be a result of that. Um, uh, clearly, homosexual behavior is a sin. And of course, we've established that through our discussion today and, and of course, just looking at scripture. But then the question becomes making a distinction between um, the attraction <coughs> itself and um, the behavior. So I would say this. Um, there are people uh, that probably both you and I know, uh, and I'll just mention some people who are just um, publicly known to be as well in this situation too. But like, for example, Christopher Yuan or Sam Alberry. These are people who are professing Christians who love Jesus Christ who strive each day to obey Christ and biblical commands, uh, but they experience same-sex attraction, okay? So they're not attracted to the opposite sex, they're attracted to the same sex. As, let's just say Christopher Yuan, again, who's a friend of mine, um, as he goes about his life, is he in sin merely because he's a person who generally experiences same-sex attraction? Well, well, I would say no, right? Um, uh, j- j- just because that's his quote unquote orientation, although I don't, <clears throat> I don't like that phrase, but that term, but even if that is his orientation, that is his inclination to be attracted to another man that wouldn't make him in, co- in a constant state of sin simply because he has that, that orientation. Okay. Now, if he experiences a moment where let's say he sees this guy, sees a man and he experiences a sexual attraction towards him, right? Either <clears throat> in terms of fantasy, like he sexually fantasizes about him, or of course, if he engages in sexual, physical sexual sin, uh, sexual behavior. Well, then, of course, at that point, that's when it becomes sin. So when a person experiences same-sex attraction, if they're fantasizing like lusting about that person or fantasizing having sex with that person yes that at that point that's when it becomes sin and i would say that the a corollary would be to a heterosexual person like myself you know if i see a woman and i'm attracted to her um merely being attracted to her wouldn't be sin but if i then begin to fantasize having sex with her or if I was to obviously engage in a physical action with her, well, then, of course, that would be sin. But merely being tempted to sin would not be sin. And in the same way, if um, a, a Christian with same-sex attraction is, um, is tempted to sin but resists that temptation to think lustfully about it or to engage in a physical act, then I would argue that that would also not be sin. No, I think that's helpful and it makes a lot of sense because we all, you know, we all deal with that in different ways. And I think we can understand that distinction of when, you know, you have the attraction and you just, you know, move away from it or you don't cultivate it. And other times when we do, and that is a different, that it's a leaning, it's a use of the will in certain directions. 
that makes it, you know, kind of that rebellion or that deciding to go against what God says. No, that's really helpful. So, you know, as we kind of kind of get to the to a close here in our churches, let's say you 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 meet someone who is struggling. They have same-sex attraction. They're not they don't want, you know, they're kind of like your friends there, Christopher Yuan, saying they don't they want to do what's right by the Lord. They don't want to go that route. How do we do a better job as the church of helping those people? Well, I think um we, we've done, well, let me just confess right here. I think we've done a horrible job <laughs> historically uh, with those with those people, right? And this is partly why um, so many of them have then fled to these, quote-unquote, gay-affirming churches, um, which have horrible theology, uh, but are so accepting of them. And so I think we need to do a better job of helping these individuals who are professing Christians or who, do, who have spiritual yearnings but struggle with same-sex attraction. So um, one of the things I think we need to do is make the church, and forgive me for using kind of a buzzword here, uh, a safe place for people who are struggling with their sexuality or their gender or their, um, um, you know, their, their sexuality. And, and by, by making a safe place, I don't mean lower our sexual standards or our biblical ethics. I just mean that we need to recognize that these people aren't going to live a perfect life and they will probably struggle and fail at times. And we need to be there to, um, to love them, to lift them up, to hold them accountable and to walk with them through that journey. Cause it's not going to be an easy sort of non messy journey. It's going to be messy and it's going to be difficult. And I think we've oftentimes not given enough grace to people who are struggling with these um, experiences. Uh, and because of that, they have felt rejected or, or unwanted or unloved and therefore kicked out of the church. And then, of course, this is why I think they fled to flee to a lot of other churches. And so I think this is one thing that we need to do to change in order to help them as they struggle. So um, I would say, Make your relationship with them a a a high priority. Um, you know, tell them that you love them. Tell them that you're willing to walk with them. Uh, and as I said, make I think make just generally um, the church and or your congregation or your group or small group, whatever that person, whatever context that person might be in, a safer place for them to be able to um, pursue godliness and holiness while still feeling like they can be accepted if they if they falter at times, you know, because we all falter. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just as an aside on that question, do you encourage people to help people in the church not to see themselves as quote-unquote gay? In other words, I know Christopher Yuan says it's not, your sexuality is not who you are, but it's how you are. Is it important to help them understand that principle or is it okay, like, would you say, no, pastors, it's okay if you let them use that terminology or whatever, you just try to help them understand not to engage in the behavior. Is there anything in there that you would recommend? Uh, yeah, so are you referring to uh, people who, like, like if uh, people who are like Christopher Yuan, who are Christian, yeah. Yeah. Uh, experience same-sex attraction, yeah. should they identify themselves as a gay Christian? Is that what you mean? Y- yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. So yeah, this is this is a pretty uh, interesting debate, um, and there's a lot of Christians on both sides of this question. Me personally, I disagree with using the term "gay Christian" to refer to a person like Christopher Yuan or Rosaria Butterfield or Sam Elberry. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't think that we as Christians should ever qualify our identity with Christ with anything, let alone let alone with a sexual vice mm. like like homosexuality, which I think is what what the word gay refers to. Mm. So um, I would say no. I don't encourage um, my friends who are faithful followers of Jesus who experience same-sex attraction to identify themselves as a gay Christian. Rather, I say you should just identify yourself as a Christian. You can say, and they do, and it's not like I'm telling them to do this, but if they were to ask me, um, I would tell them this, but this is what they often do. They'll say, no, no, no I, I'm a Christian. They say, I struggle with same-sex attraction or I struggle with homosexuality, but I'm a Christian. And in fact, they would argue, I'm a new creation. I am no longer a slave to my same-sex attractions, um, but I'm a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You know, so yeah, I I personally don't agree with the with the language of gay Christian to describe um, a faithful follower of Jesus who experiences same sex attraction. I think it's confusing to the world. I think if you were to take the average non Christian and ask and, and tell them, "Hi, I'm a gay Christian," and you were to ask this non Christian, "What do you think that means?" I bet they would think it means. That they are a Christian who engages in homosexuality or who's who's right. okay with being gay, right? And that, but but that's not at all what Christopher Yuan is or Rosaria Butterfield or Sam Albury. Yeah, you know. So I think it's really misleading. I think it actually creates confusion, and I think it it um, it diminishes um, our identity in Christ and what Christ mm. has done, which is created in us new creation, uh, make us a new creation. Sorry, no, that's good. Um, and then kind of the next layer of that, when you have, when you're in church, I'm, cause I'm just, I'm giving you these examples from my own experience and other people's experience that I've heard from, but you know, you're a leader in the church or you're, you're, you know, discipling people and you get someone comes up that struggles with same sex attraction, but they're starting to identify as gay. They're starting to read some of the Matthew Vine stuff and maybe even being convinced by it. What, what do you recommend leaders do in that case? Because it's such a sensitive, and I know there's no one size fits all answer, but what's what's kind of the best way to walk through when they start adding that intellectual layer to to kind of rationalize engaging in the behavior? Well, well, I would if I was a leader, or if I was asked by a leader, I would say I would encourage that leader to then invite that person to perhaps meet with them on a regular basis to discuss these questions, you know, in other words, try to do what you can to continue the relationship and, and build on it rather than try to resort to some short cliche statement yeah. that will just sort of turn them off. Mm. In, in fact, I think too often we think that if we can just sort of say some sort of quick cliche, Hey, well, you know, we just need to, you know, uh, love the sinner but hate the sin or whatever we think that we've sort of done our duty and we can just kind of like feel good about what we've said but rather i'd encourage that leader or the pastor whoever is to in, invite that person who's having these questions and beginning to make a case for it 
into a, a relationship where they can maybe, you know, walk through those particular challenges so that the conversation can continue and so that the person who's maybe buying into pro-gay theology can have an opportunity to express their questions and their doubts in a setting where they can be answered in a timely, nuanced way. Mm. Uh, if not, it, what will happen is we'll just try to give these quick, trite, cliche-ish answers and they'll probably fail. And that person will probably just walk away from that church and go find some gay affirming church, you know? And and after all, since the person is, <clears throat> you know, professing to be a Christian, so long as they consider the Bible still to be an authority, we have the truth on our side and we have an incredible um, source of truth that can help guide them. So yeah. um, why not take advantage of that? You know, the Bible is really clear about, sexuality about marriage about homosexuality so um i think it's i think it's incredibly clear and i would argue that even the you know the bible's teaching on marriage alone would disqualify same-sex behavior so we have so much available to us and leaders would have so much available to them to guide that person in a in a conversation um, a long-term conversation, you know, uh, that's, that's really good. And you have a, you have a whole book on this, right? Is it on Amazon or it's on Amazon and it's on our website as well okay. uh, called the ambassadors, the ambassadors guide to understanding homosexuality. Okay. And then if you were to, or if you were to go to str.org um, and just click on um, my articles and blogs, you can just click on my name and it'll, it'll sort everything. I, I, uh, probably 60 to 70% of everything I write has to do with, you know, marriage, sex and sexuality and homosexuality and transgender and stuff like that. So there's a lot of free content there as well. Well, thank you, Alan. Uh, hopefully maybe I won't put you on the spot here, but maybe we'll get you back on uh, some time to have a part two. We talk about the scientific evidence. Cause I know you have a lot on that as well. Just, you know, are people born gay do um, <clears throat> is, is is homosexual behavior harmful to the body and and you know is there how, how do you, is there anything you know it'd be a controversial subject maybe to jump into reparative um i forget the words popping on my head therapy yeah and stuff like that so maybe maybe next time we'll we'll get into those actual issues but thank you for kind of helping us think through the biblical issues today and, and we really appreciate your ministry and continue to uh, pray for you guys at str and we hope people will get connected to y'all's ministry there we hope you enjoyed that interview with alan schleeman you can find links to his work in show notes and links to a lot of other resources that we post every week in the show notes section. We'd love to hear your feedback and interact with you at FreeMindFM on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at FreeMindPodcastFM. And if you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done that yet. And don't forget, we have bonus episodes with many of our special guests from the past. You can check those out and support the show for any amount every month at patreon.com slash freemindfm. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash freemindfm. Support the show and get access to all the back catalog of bonus episodes. Thanks for joining us this week. Be on the lookout for the registration and information on the next open forum on race and the church, and we'll catch you next week.